Shall we pray? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that Christ is King over all. Lord, we thank you for the certain hope that we have that the resurrected one will one day return, bringing peace and harmony, wiping away all tears. Send your Holy Spirit now and make us to be a people who start that work in faith that you will complete it. Amen. Amen. Uh, we continue our series on 1 Thessalonians. Uh, today we are in, um, in the middle of 1 Thessalonians 4 and the start of chapter 5. Um, today is also the day of the church that celebrates Christ the King. That's why some of our liturgy has that kind of ring to it. Which is appropriate because 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5 is all about how Christ is the King and Christ will return and establish his kingdom fully one day. Um, let me start by exploring um, some of the liturgy that we use. So next week is our all-age service. And when we do our all-age service, we, do, um, we use a, a version of the creed, which has a response, which is... Well done, but none of you did the actions, so no points. <laughs> uh, Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again, we declare... Uh, all those all services. Um, and indeed, at our 9.30 service and in a lot of communion services, that piece of liturgy is used right in the middle of the communion prayer. We declare, Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. How do you feel about those statements? Do you see them as equal importance? Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. My suspicion is many of us see them in kind of descending order. Is that true? Christ has died. Yeah, we can agree with that. Christ has risen. Yeah, I kind of believe that. Help me with my unbelief. Christ will come again. Oh, that one, I find that one a bit creepy. I don't know what to do with that one. Anyone else feel like that? Or everyone else? Yeah, good. There's some nods. I'm not just on my own. But they are equal statements. On the Alpha video, um, on the Alpha videos about why Jesus died, they do this, they do the Vots pop and they go through, they say, why did Jesus die? And one, one of the people in the Vots pop says, well, everyone dies, don't they? We can subscribe to that first statement. Do you believe that Jesus was resurrected? Do you believe that Jesus has defeated death? I think we need a step of faith to believe that. Do you believe that he'll come again one day? It requires an even bigger step of faith, doesn't it? But strangely, for the earlier Christi for earliest Christians to whom this one Thessalonians letter is written to, in some ways it was the other way around. Other way around. The idea that Christ will come again was right up on their, their radar. They really believed it would happen any day. They were waiting for the coming of Christ. It might happen on Tuesday. Kind of, there's this feeling in the letter that there's a disappointment that the coming of Christ hasn't yet happened. And that's kind of fed from the fact that they find believing in the resurrection quite easy. One of the reasons they find believing in the resurrection quite easy is because some of them had seen it. In 1 Corinthians 15, we're told that the resurrection of Jesus appeared to at least 500 people. If you doubt the resurrection of Jesus and you're in the Thessalonian church, go and ask Dave. Dave's mate saw it. You can hear from first-hand accounts 
that Jesus had defeated death. The thing that they struggle with is the fact that the Messiah, the anointed one of God, the one who was sent by God to give freedom to God's people, to rescue and redeem, the fact that he then dies a criminal slave's death on the cross. That's, for them, the challenge. How could the king die such a humiliating death? What we see in this one Thessalonians letter, this first letter to the Thessalonians, is a wrestling with the expectation that Christ would have returned by now. You know, some of them actually saw him go up to heaven. Some of them saw the ascension. Oh, he'd be that down soon. They wrestle with the tension of not seeing that happen and starting to see some of their, their friends, starting to see some members of the church, starting to see probably some eyewitnesses to the resurrection start to die. And in this letter, there's a, in this verses, there's a wrestling. How do you reconcile those two things? Now, the Gospels, Jesus says, everyone who believes and believes in me will never die. How do you live as a church when you, your members start to pass away? This is the pastoral problem that is at the heart of this section. What are we to do with those who have died? Where are they residing now? What's happening? And what Paul does is he says, lift your eyes up and look for the coming of Christ. The promise that Christ will come again is where we find hope. It's where we find our purpose. And it's where we also find our allegiance. And at the end, I'm going to explore those three things. You know, this passage teaches us how to grieve. This passage teaches us how to minister. And this, this passage teaches us something of how we do our politics. I didn't want to do the last one, but Karl Barth says, preach with the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other. And the newspaper's full of politics. So what does the coming of Christ look like? What's going on here? I'm going to teach you a Greek word. When you're at theological college, they always say, never use Greek words in sermons. You're going to lose half the, half the congregation. But are you all right for me to use your, a Greek word and teach you a Greek word that's in the midst of this? It's quite an important Greek word. Good, three people are up for it. Excellent. So the Greek word is the word parousia. Parousia, it's a noun, it's a Greek noun, and it's often translated as the coming of Christ. Parousia. Can you say it? Parousia. Wow, done. that was good, wasn't it? Parousia is the coming of Christ. It means the royal presence. So in this passage where you see it, it says the coming of Christ. With it is a whole bunch of of history and feelings about the fact that there's a royal presence coming. It quite literally says the parousia of Christ. And we see this word pop up in ancient uh, literature again and again and again. Uh, in the book of Nehemiah in the Bible, it says the, 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 king was, the king and the queen, where the queen goes away and then when the queen returns, her parousia returns. The, the parousia of the queen comes back. The royal presence of the queen returns to the king. It's a royal presence. Um, there is writings in the, in, um, from Egypt that the pharaoh was about to visit a town and they were expecting his parousia. 
that the Pharaoh was coming, and so they worked, and they put aside certain amounts of their, their money and their, their time and their um, grain in order to prepare themselves for the parousia of the Pharaoh. And it was also used to refer to, and this would be particularly at the top of the Thessalonians' minds, it was used to refer to the coming of Caesar. When Caesar came to visit a town, it would be the parousia of the Caesar, the royal presence of the king. And they would get ready for that. They'd be expecting the royal presence of the king. A messenger would be arriving in two weeks' time, the king was coming. So get everything looking great. We do the same thing now, don't we? The queen's coming, we change our behavior. The Queen thinks that every single public building smells of fresh paint. (laughs) How are we getting ready for the parousia of the King? Now, what would happen in Thessalonica is they would get an announcement that the King was coming. Caesar was coming. There was going to be a parousia. It's an event. It's not a verb. It's an event. There's going to be a parousia. So what they would do is they would get the town ready, and then all the retired soldiers, and Thessalonica was was really a retirement town for soldiers, they would ride out into the countryside, and they would form an honour guard, meeting the Caesar out of the town, and then ride into town with the Caesar. And that would be known as going up to meet Caesar and then accompany him back here. So when we have the language in this passage in Thessalonica of meeting Christ up in the clouds, it's not that we get gathered up to be taken somewhere else, but rather it's a we go out and meet him as his honour guard and welcome his royal presence into our town. Does that make sense? This passage has been misused again and again and again to make it think that somehow the Christian faith is about going somewhere else, which is for the clouds, where you play harps, which sounds boring, if I'm honest, and I'm not very musical, and I don't understand it, and you polish a cloud for eternity. No, it's not what this passage is about. This passage is about that we go out, and we meet the kin, and we bring him back here. Not that we would go elsewhere, but that we would welcome the kin here. That although this place that we live is not right, although this place that we live is broken, although we are surrounded by wrongness and death and illness, still this is the place that the kin belongs. This is the place the kin is coming to redeem and renew. I preached a sermon at a funeral um, a few days ago, um, and I used the passage from Revelation that, that God will make all things new. The previous Bishop of London used to criticize young and enthusiastic vicars and curates who had novel ideas and go, God says he'll make all things new, not all new things. God is about restoring this world, making this world right. And we are the honour guard that go to greet the king as he starts to put this world right. We are people of the light 
living in darkness. We are people of the day living in a world of night. We are people who life, we are people of life who live in the era where death still reigns. But our allegiance is not to death, to night, or to darkness. Our allegiance is to him who is light, him who is the daylight, him who is life. That's an exciting message, isn't it? So I think this vintage, this model looking at Thessalonians teaches us three things. It teaches us how to grieve. It teaches us how we minister, how we serve one another, why we do. And it teaches us how we do politics. So very briefly, those three things. This passage says, it brackets, encourage one another. Starts off with the starts off in the passage talking about you know some of you have fallen asleep. That's the that's the Paul's code for you know died. You're worried about where those people are. What's what's going on? You know, why 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 are some of you dying? Lift your eyes and look to the fact that one day Christ will rise everyone from the dead. That He'll restore all things new. There you find comfort in your grief. Because there you can live with the tension that grief is right and proper and that we should be sad. We should be broken that we've lost, lost loved ones. But we can also live in hope that one day that will be reversed. That God doesn't just accept death and somehow make it acceptable, but he defeats it and destroys it. For too long, the church has made death this acceptable thing that we should just get over. Oh, you're sad. It's all right. They're in a better place. Now, you're sad because Jesus was sad when his friends died. You're broken because death breaks us. You're mourning because death is wrong, and that's why Jesus defeated it. And he will defeat it. Christ will come again and all will be restored and all will be made new and every tear of grief will be washed away. With a theology of the resurrection in our hearts and a theology of the second coming, our grief becomes something that is acceptable but also something that we can be defeated by the fact we look for hope. that our grief becomes something that we inhabit now, but also something that we can look and raise our eyes and know it won't be the last word over our life. That the Saviour will whisper, Arise, O sleeper, awake. And we'll see those that we've lost restored. But we're right to feel broken now. We're right to feel upset. Many of you might know Lewis Lloyd. Do you know Lewis Lloyd? Uh, he's been part of the Ninth Faith Congregation, and he's, um, he would sing to my children in, in the fish and chip shop, which is really embarrassing. He was the most full-of-life person I've met in this church in many ways. Um, he was a humble, and he, and he died on Thursday. And I'm left going, I'm broken, 
But I also know that life is too big. That a man who sings Italian opera in a fish and chip shop will not be kept down by this little thing called death because they didn't keep Jesus down. A man who radiated God's Holy Spirit because the same spirit that raised Christ from the grave lives in him and will raise him again at the end. Secondly, why we minister, why we serve. That honour God thing is what we do day in, day out. When we do a good and right thing, when we set up a youth club where there was derelict buildings, we go out and we meet the king and we say, this is what the kingdom of God looks like. When we sing in worship, we lift our eyes from this world to the coming king. Why I love the revival that's happening in modern worship music at the moment that sings of resurrection so much. We sung about it in um, um, I Cast My Mind to Calvary. We sung about resurrection. When we do good, when we create light out of darkness, what we're doing is we are beachheads and a foretaste of what is to come. The Holy Spirit that works in us, the Holy Spirit that we encounter, that we allow to shape us, is shaping us into the character of him who will come. So we won't be surprised at what Jesus looks like because we've allowed our hearts, our actions, and our worship to be shaped by the same Spirit that will one day bring all creation renewed and restored. And indeed, in some way, what we do now is building that eternal kingdom. I love MTV youth. It's a story of uh, a story of this this derelict area being transformed into a vibrant school and youth club. I reckon it will continue into eternity because it's a foretaste of what eternity is. The reason that the church launches food banks and we support feeding the poor is because we declare in that moment that when Jesus comes back, all will be fed. We don't do it just because it's a good thing, but it is a good thing, but we do it because it's a proclamation of what the kingdom of God will be like. So a good theology of the second coming of Christ teaches us how to be servers and worshippers. And lastly, a good theology of the coming of Christ, the declaration that Christ will come again, is a political statement. It teaches us how to do politics. As Philippians 3 says, we are citizens of heaven. We are citizens not of this world, but of the coming kingdom of Christ. Stanley Hauerwas says this, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is a political gospel. Christians are engaged in politics, but it is a politics of the kingdom that reveals the insufficiency and falsehoods and finds the true source of power is in servanthood rather than domination. That, the, that our belief that Jesus is coming and he is the true king should shape the way that we engage in politics. Not in a partisan way. Yes, you may take these words and reach conclusions about which party to vote for, but that's not what we're going to do as a church. As a church, we say the true king is Jesus. There are times that we have to be prophetic to show the injustices of this world, 
But we're not a conservative or Labour or a Lib Dem church. We're not a Remain church or a Leave church. Because we recognise that although there are problems in this world, although this world is broken, and although various different political parties of different colours are trying to fix those problems, the only thing that will fix those problems, the only thing that will restore goodness and harmony to this world continually, is Jesus Christ. Is the second coming of Jesus Christ. And although our political system should work to the common good, Although our political systems should seek to see that coming as much as possible now, it will never happen until Christ comes back. So although we should be engaged in politics, and I have very strong political views, they are not the answer of the church. The answer of the church is to declare that Jesus Christ is king and it's him that we're serving. Not some political party, not some view of the day. Now there is a caveat to this. We deal with the words and works of salvation. We deal with the one who brings salvation to all. The state, the politics of the day, work to try and make sure that we all get on okay. The technical side of this is we work for righteousness, uh, we work for salvation, they work for making sure that there is righteousness amongst us, that we, they, um, they work to make sure that we live in peace. The danger is, is when the state starts to talk about itself as a body that gives salvation. That unless you live and vote or join the party that I'm part of, you're not saved, you're not right, you're not human in some way. And there are times in history, and there'll be times in the future, where that happens. That if you don't have a certain political view, you are somehow persona non grata. That you are not right. The best writings about this came, came through the church wrestling in, in the 1930s in Germany and Austria and such like with the rise of national socialism, socialism and Hitler. When the message there was, unless you're part of the Nazi party, you're, you're not a real person unless you're part of a certain thing that you're not a person. And that message is anti-Christian. And if we ever get to that place, as a church, we will stand and say, the only true kin, the only person you have to show true allegiance, complete allegiance to, is Jesus Christ. That doesn't come through some political party. When a political party says they are the, the sa- salvation, they have a salvation narrative, that's where they've gone wrong. So we are engaged in politics as a prophetic act. Food banks are probably the most political thing the church has done for years and years and years and years and years. But they're not partisan. They're just highlighting the fact there's hungry, broken people out there. So we will continue to be a political church, a church that understands there's power, but we will not be partisan unless parties start to demand loyalty to the point of salvation. Does that make sense? It's a complicated, complicated political theology point there. I can point you towards long books that write about it. But I just think in this day and age where politics is divided, we have to be clear that we are united in Christ Jesus and him alone. Not in our political affiliations, not in what colour sticker we put on our bumper, 
but we're united in Jesus Christ. And that's why I don't talk about partisan politics. Because I really want to, because I actually really enjoy talking about it. <laughs> but actually, I'm here to remind people that Jesus Christ is king. Christ has died. I didn't expect that. <laughs> That's made my day. <laughs> That's fantastic. Shall we worship God? If you're able, will you please stand?